Good morning, great to see everybody. Just a housekeeping announcement. I'm actually leaving to Israel for a week in a couple of hours. So next week, um, Rabbi Moskowitz is going to teach the Parsha class. <clears throat> he'll continue with his normal Daniel class following this at 10.30. Next week there'll be one class at 9.30 and Rabbi Moskowitz will teach uh, Parsha. We continue with Parsha's Vayetze as our story continues to unfold in a uh, dramatic and fantastic fashion. Last week we left off. Yaakov had taken the brachos from his brother. I don't know if he took them from his brother. They were rightfully his after he purchased the birthright. But Yaakov receives the brachos. If you remember, we ended last week by saying that it was uh, fascinating. At the end of the parasha, when Yitzhak summons Yaakov and says, You're on the run. You're fleeing from your brother. Don't marry a woman from Canaan. And let me give you a bracha. How could you leave without a... How could you leave without a bracha? And last week we spoke about the idea, how could Yitzhak not have confronted Yaakov? What did you do? You deceived me. You fooled me. How could you have done that? You tricked me. You lied to me. How is it that Yitzhak did not confront Yaakov about what had just occurred and instead only gives him a bracha? We talked about that last week. But I saw a beautiful insight that when Yitzhak summons Yaakov to give him this bracha before he sends him off, the Pasuk says, Vayikra Yitzhak el Yaakov Yitzchak summons Yaakov, he gives him a bracha, and then he gives him a directive. Only then does he command him, do not take a woman from the women of Canaan. There's a sefer on Chinuch that is a beautiful insight. I forgot the name of the sefer. It says, you see, before a parent, before you command a child, before you give them direction, First, you always have to give him a bracha first. The child has to know that what you're about to say comes out of a sense of love, comes out of a sense of devotion. You can't just call a child and the relationship is only about don't do this, do this, here's the punishment, here's the consequence, but if the premise of the relationship, if the relationship is founded on bracha, on love and affection, then and here it's not negative feedback, he's not critiquing or criticizing Yaakov, but even giving him direction has to begin with and only then Okay, so we begin our parsha, And in our parsha, Yaakov is running out, you know the famous joke they say, this just tells you how bad Jewish humor was once upon a time. How do you know that Yaakov Avinu wore a hat? It says, Vayetza Yaakov, would Yaakov go out without a hat? just tells you how terrible Jewish humor was at one time. Vayetza Yaakov, Baruch Hashem. We've improved, we've gotten there. Vayetza Yaakov, Be'ersheva, Yaakov leaves Be'ersheva, Vayelach, Charana. And he comes to Charan. And of course... If he left Beersheva, if he got to Haran, he, we know he left Beersheva. Why do we have to be told Vayetze? The famous question. He comes to a certain place, Vayefgaba Makom, Pegia. Remember, we spoke about last week the 13 different synonyms for prayer. The premise of Rapinkus is Sefer Sharon Betfila from the uh, Yakut Shimoni. So, this is one of the synonyms. Most of them come from Sefer Bracious. But this is one of the synonyms. Vayifgaba Makom, Ein Pegia El Alashon Tfila. That Yaakov comes to the place. Makom, we know, is a euphemism, is an allusion to the Ribbonoshalom, to God. We see that in many places. Baruch HaMakom, Baruch Hu. We say in, uh, we visit a base Avel. HaMakom, in Achei Meschem. We say uh, earlier with the Akedah, that Avram sees Vayaris HaMakom Meirachok. Avram feels a certain sense of distance from, why, when do we use this name of Hashem, Makom? Also, we've spoken about in the past. So, Vayifka Bamakom, 
uh, Yaakov encounters God, and Vayivka is not just to encounter, he encounters him through tefillah. And he lays down his head, and we know the Medrash about the rocks. Each one fights to hold his head, and they gather and collect into one rock. How many rocks were there? Twelve. They gather into one. And this is the idea that Yaakov is destined to be the father of twelve children, twelve tribes, the notion of diversity. But the rocks ultimately gather as one, are combined into one, because while we value diversity, we celebrate unity. Okay, thank you, BRS members. Vayachalom, so Yaakov has a dream, and he sees the ladder. It's extending to the heavens. The angels are ascending and descending. It seems to be the wrong order. Angels originate in heaven. First they should descend and then ascend. Of course, Rashi deals with this. And he has this dream, and Hashem makes him a promise that uh, his children will be ka'afar ha'aretz, ufaratzta, you will spread out. Part of the promise to the Jewish people is not only do we take our value system and live in our land, but we take our show on the road. That we spread out. was one of the great campaigns of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zatzal, that commanded his Hasidim to cover the corners of the globe wherever there's a Jew. And even some places there are very few Jews bring the Jewish ideal and values to the B'nai Noach world, but Ufaratzta, and again, we see the repetition of this promise, that the nations of the world will be blessed for us. Yaakov has this dream of this ladder, because this represents the transition in Yaakov's life. Yaakov goes from, I make it too cold, Yaakov goes from the Ishtam Yoshev Oalim, he is the somewhat passive, sheltered Yeshiva Bachar, and now he's about to enter the world of trickery and deception. He's about to enter a world of conflict and confrontation. He's about to enter a complicated world to live in. It's not a coincidence, by the way, where he spends 14 years. In what yeshiva? Because where did they live? They understood what it was like to live in a world of chaos and confusion and how to hold true and dear to your Jewish values even in that world. Yaakov leaves the base medrash of his father. He had access to the base medrash of his grandfather, of Avram. And 14 years he spends in the base medrash of Shem Ve'ever. And says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the base medrash of Avram and the base medrash of Yitzchak are pure, pristine places that teach you how to be the ideal Jew in the ideal world. They're somewhat of an ivory tower. But Shem Ve'ever, who confronted corruption, who lived in a world of deception, that's where Yaakov prepared himself for what he was about to encounter afterwards. Because where does he go from Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever? To the house of? Lavan. And is there a greater source of corruption and a lack of integrity and duplicity and so on than, than Lavan? So part of this transition is this dream Yaakov has. Yaakov goes from thinking that what's holiness? What is Kedusha? Asceticism, living, transcending the physical world. That's how you attain holiness. Be in the base medrash, studying Torah all day long. So he goes to sleep and he has a dream when he's on the run. And there's a ladder, there's a bridge between heaven and earth. And he understands that the goal is not to escape to heaven. The goal is to lift earth. The goal is to take the mundane and transform it into that which is holy. Yaakov now leaves the walls of the classic base medrash, a place that is exclusive of Torah, exclusively dedicated to Torah, and he enters the workforce. He understands that you bring these values to the workforce. Now the Rambam talks about Yaakov's diligence. The Rambam talks about Yaakov. It's very unusual. In the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam is talking about the laws of being a worker. The Rambam references Yaakov's 
honesty, integrity, diligence, which is unusual. The Yaram doesn't normally reference Torah passages in the context of Jewish law in the Mishnah Torah. But he does because the way Yaakov differentiates himself is by taking the Beis Medrash to the workforce. He doesn't, he realizes that holiness and sanctity and religion are not isolated to the four walls of the shul or of the base medrash, but it's how we conduct ourselves at work. Are we honest? Yaakov doesn't take a moment. He doesn't steal a moment. He doesn't steal a, a morsel of food. So what we do in our workplace and how we conduct ourselves outside the shul and the base medrash, and that's the dream of this ladder that bridges heaven and earth. And that's when Yaakov wakes and he realizes. So he wakes up and he says, I thought Hashem was only in the base medrash. But lo and behold, Hashem is right here. He's on this mountain. Hashem is right here in the world, in the mundane. Hashem is right here in the physical. I didn't know. Yaakov didn't know that Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. <laughs> Yitzchak didn't play Uncle Moshe for Yaakov when he was in the crib, when he was in the car seat. He didn't know Hashem is everywhere. The answer is, of course Yaakov knew Hashem is everywhere. But he didn't appreciate, again, the notion that sanctity and holiness not only can be achieved, but are most authentically achieved when we take Torah and it directs our mundane lives as well. This is a Beis HaLukim Vizeh Shar HaShamayim. Yaakov wakes and he makes a matzeva and he memorializes the experience. Vayidor Yaakov Neder, he takes an oath, if God will be with me and protect me and give me food and clothing and I return, B'Shalom Abis Avi, if this all works out, right? He's setting out on his journey. He's fleeing from his brother who wants to kill him. And he says, God, here's the deal. I'm heading out on a journey. Maybe this is the first Tefillah Saderach. Here's the deal. God, I'm taking an oath, I'm making a promise. If you protect me, and secure me, and give me food, and give me shelter, and give me clothing, and I can return safely, then then God will be for me a God. Very peculiar. Yaakov Avinu, this man of Amun, is cutting deals with God. Listen, I'll love you, but here's how you have to love me. One would think Yaakov's uh, Amuna would be independent would be not connected to any conditions, unconditional. And yet here he says, Vayashem li, lelokim, what's going on in this passage? Again, is a, a long story for another time. Yaakov heads out, and he encounters these uh, wells, and of course he meets Rachel at the well, and Yaakov turns to these shepherds, and they're standing around, and he says to them, Vayomalam Yaakov, achai, ne'ayanatem, vayomalam They're standing around with the sheep, and he says, Hey brothers, where are you from? They say, from Choron. He says, oh. is Lovan ben Achor? You know Lovan? I have a relative there. Sure, Vayomer Yadanu. HaShalom lo. Regards. And just then, Rachel is arriving with the, with the tzon. Yaakov Avinu is giving them Musr. I think we may have mentioned this in the past. These shepherds are standing around. They're lazy and lackadaisical. They're violating Yaakov's core value. They're being dishonest. They're being paid to work. And what are they doing? They're on Facebook. What are they doing? They're sitting around surfing the web. They're sitting around reading blogs. And Yaakov says, what are you doing? You have sheep. And there's a well. And you've got work to do. So who is Yaakov to give them Musr? He's a stranger. He walks up to them out of nowhere. Where does he come off giving them Musr? I think it's Yaakov Kamenetsky also, I'm not sure, who says, what's the secret? It's similar to the insight about Yitzchak's bracha to Yaakov. What's the secret? How does he get away with giving them Musr? What's the first word he says to them? 
Achai. Hey, brothers. Oh, is he Reb Shlomo? Hey, brother. Holy brother. He connects to them with a sense of love. He first develops a rapport with them. Hey, brothers, what's going on? Where are you from? How are you? What's going on? Tell me about yourself. Listen, don't you think maybe should be feeding the sheep? <laughs> Shouldn't we be working a little bit? By first establishing the rapport, Achai, brother, by first making them feel that he is coming to them not as an adversary, but he's approaching them as Achai, as a brother, that's where he positions himself and has the wherewithal to give them that feedback. Okay, they, they uh, encounter one another, Yaakov and Rachel, it's love at first sight, Yaakov comes home and interacts with Lavan, they uh, contract what the deal is, there is the deception, right? Lavan says, just because you're my relative, should you serve me for nothing? What can I pay you? And Yaakov loved Rachel, he said, I'll work for seven years. Lavan said, um, we don't do that, we do the older first, so Yaakov worked seven years, but, and here's an unusual sentence, middle of page 150. Yaakov worked for her for seven years and what did it feel like? felt like it was a few days I'm leaving Israel in a few hours and it feels like it's forever I can't wait to go when you have something you're excited about you're counting down and it feels like it's taking forever Yaakov is so excited this is the love of his life and he's got to work and yet these seven years feel like yamim achadim so the answer is why did they feel like yamim achadim biyahavaso osa we mentioned this in the fourth part of our four-part Gottman series that I'm shamelessly plugging. You could listen to on the homepage of the website, four-part series on Shalom Bias, the incredible principles of Dr. John Gottman, a great authority on healthy marriages. This is not his insight. He doesn't quote this for it. But what does it mean? Why did it feel like a few days? Why didn't it feel like it took forever to have to pay off these seven years? The answer is, When you understand that love is the result of giving, that when you give, when you make an effort, when you compromise, when you sacrifice, when you invest a piece of yourself into the other, you promote love. Not Love is not the result of receiving, but rather love is the result of giving. The more we give, the more we love. And that's why in Rav Dessler's language, parents love children more than children could ever love parents. Even though children receive, you'd think children should love parents much more. Children take and take and take and take. At some point in life, we hope they give back a little nachas. They give back, they take care of us a little bit. But certainly the early times of life, they take and take and take and take and deplete us of our resources and our energy and our emotions and our hairline. They take everything. They take everything. And yet, says Rav Dessler, parents love children more than children could ever love parents. What do you see? Love is the result of giving, not the result of receiving. Yaakov is going through an act of giving. Seven years of breaking his back. Seven years of labor and toil. All to earn and to achieve that wife, that woman, Rachel. And therefore, it was the work was the result of because he loved her, that made the work pass quickly. When you're giving because you're creating love, then the days pass quickly. Okay. Next, love and substitutes Leah for Rachel. We know Rachel gives, Torah uh, Shabbat tells us that Rachel courageously, heroically, gives the signs to Leah to not embarrass her. And this uh, substitution is, uh, is made. Leah has four children. Rachel struggles with infertility. We have the episode of the Dudaim. Ruvain comes back from the field with these, excuse me, these Dudaim, which there's a big debate what they are. Jasmine, violets, mandrakes, figs. 
whatever they are, but they're somehow uh, they're helpful for fertility. Um, and so uh, Rachel wants them. And Leah says, first you took my husband, and now you want my dudaim. And how does Rachel respond? We'll get to this, because this is what we're going to study in depth. How does Rachel respond? If you were Rachel, how would you respond? Leah says, first you took my husband, and now you want my dudaim, my, my beloved, my little Ruvain, just came back with these precious dudaim for me to enjoy, and now you want my dudaim? If you're Rachel, what do you say? You say, excuse me? Excuse me, one second. I took your husband? My dear beloved sister Leah, have you forgotten what I gave up for you? Have you forgotten that I gave you the key, the sign, so that Yaakov would in fact go through and consecrate the marriage to you? My beloved precious sister, I took you, that is the height of chutzpah. Are you out of your mind? I took your husband? And what does Rachel say instead? What does she say? She says nothing. She says, you're right. They are your dudaim. So I'll tell you what, I'll trade you. Tonight was my night with Yaakov. You take the night and I'll take the dudaim. Wow. Unbelievable about Rachel. She held it to herself. She did not lash out though she would have easily been entitled to. What a powerful lesson. Rav Yanka Legolinsky points this out in his Vigarita. That Rachel, in an effort to continue to show deference to her older sister and to not embarrass her, Soleya said something backwards. Soleya had it all wrong. Rachel swallowed her pride. It's part of her, we'll see in a moment, the Kliyakar. It's part of Rachel's kapara for having felt some sense of jealousy. She struggled with jealousy and part of the way she's repairing from jealousy is to go above and beyond and not feel jealous. And one of the ways she goes above and beyond is even when she would have been entitled to lash out, even when she would have been right for her to turn to Leah and say, are you out of your mind? What an ingrate. The height of chutzpah. I took your, your husband? She says, okay. If that's the narrative, if that's the version of the story Leah wants, okay, I'll let her have it. What a lesson for us. How often do we have people in our life who distort history and distort the truth? Siblings, or, or family members, or friends, or business partners who take the credit for our idea, who twist the whole story around. Rachel found the capacity to say, okay, that's his ver- version of the story. You know what? It means more to her than it does to me. Fine, fine. I feel bad enough for her. Fine, let her keep her version of the story. Leah has three more children. Rachel finally conceives and has Yosef Hatzadik. Yaakov wants to lead, but he has this employment contract. Lavan deceives him again. We have the whole episode with the speckled and the spotted goats. What Yaakov does in the trough in order to um, leverage or in order to uh, up his odds. And then we have the decision to flee from Lavan, which again includes deception. The book of Bereshit, by the way, is filled with lie after lie after lie after lie. From the very beginning until the end of the book of Bereshit. Our wonderful Avos and Imahos, our matriarchs and patriarchs, their lives are riddled with deception and what seem to be lies. Which tell us either we don't appreciate, we don't understand who they are, or maybe a lie is not a lie. Maybe we need to reevaluate the notion of truth and honesty. Do we believe in absolute truth? Do we believe in relative truth? What exactly is going on? But what you see is, remember we spoke about last week, the Yaakov that Yitzchak struggled to love, not because Yitzchak didn't love him, of course Yitzchak loved Yaakov. 
But Yitzchak was afraid. I've inherited this legacy from my father. Here I am redigging the wells. The plishtim keep filling in. What's the imagery? Redigging the wells. The plishtim keep filling in means the plishtim keep trying to erase the influence of my father. And I keep having to make his mark. I keep having to bring that influence into the world. Well, who's going to fight the plishtim in the next generation? Yaakov, that pale, weak kid sitting in the ivory tower? That passive Miki Shiva Bachar, there's no chance. And that's why Yitzchak is drawn to Esav. Because even though he thinks Esav, you're right, Esav is not as much of a tzaddik. But Nunu, Esav had deceived him enough to think that he was minimally loyal to the values of Yitzchak's father Avram. He says, that Esav, he's a hunter. Look at the muscles on that kid. Look at that kid. He's a brute. He'll be able to take on the police, and he'll be able to take on anybody. And he can carry the torch forward to the next generation. And Rivka keeps telling Yitzchak, no. You're underestimating Yaakov. You're underestimating him. I'm telling you, this kid is not only a tzaddik, this kid is not only a tamachacham and a yiri shamayim, this kid is not only unbelievable in learning, this kid's got what it takes to pass it on. He's got what it takes. Don't underestimate him. And therefore, she works this ploy with Yaakov to deceive Yitzchak to say, Hey Yitzchak, what do you think of Yaakov now? He got one by you. And here you see it again. Has Yaakov learned how to interact in a world of deceit? You have to, when, you work, when you're dealing with a lovan, you have to deal with a lovan with lovan's terms. And so Yaakov does it yet again when he's leaving and they, <clears throat> they lie to Yaakov about why Rachel's not getting up. You have this confrontation. They propose a treaty and the end of our Parsha. Okay. <clears throat> the section I want to study a little bit more in depth is Perak Lamed, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 30, verse 1. Vatera Racha, we're on the bottom of page 152 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Paraklama chapter 30, verse 1. Vatera Racha Kilo Yadol Yaakov. Racha sees that she has not given birth to Yaakov. Vatikanei Rachel Baachosa. And Racha is jealous. She's jealous of her sister. Vatomer al Yaakov, and she says, Havali Vanim, give me children. Vimayan, and if you don't, Mesa Anochi. Translate those words. Okay. So we're going to have to see. Does it mean she feels I'm already dead or I will die? Rashi says Mesa Anochi. The Gemara tells us, Chazal teach us, that a person who's struggling with infertility, not our judgment or evaluation of them, but a description of how they feel. The suffering, the longing, the emptiness of suffering with infertility makes a person feel like they're dead. What gives us life? The promise of continuity. Our children represent our future. We see ourselves in them. We are passing on our values through them. They continue to, through their lives, we continue to live. And if a person feels that they are the end of the generation, they are the end of the line, Chash of it makes a person feel empty. I once wrote an article last year, two years ago, about uh, infertility etiquette, it was called. That we as a community have to be infinitely more sensitive of how we talk, that we're constantly showing off about our children and our grandchildren, we're posting online, we're sharing pictures, we're telling everybody how great, and there are people who don't have children. There are people whose children are struggling to have children and give them grandchildren. 
and we have to be sensitive in how we talk and, uh, and recognize that not everybody has the blessing that we have if we have children or grandchildren. There's a level of etiquette of derech heretz that we have to have because individuals struggling with infertility are going through enough pain. They're going through unbelievable pain, emotional pain, physical pain. You know, infertility treatments, giving oneself shots in order to undergo treatment is very painful. Financial setback. You have any idea what it costs to get fertility treatments? We have a school of fund through the shul that we give grants to people who can't afford uh, fertility treatments. If the fertility treatment is successful and there's a healthy child, they have to pay back the loan over time. If it's unsuccessful, then it's forgiven. So as not to compound their pain that they're left with this huge debt. And we need help. If anyone wants to help with the school of fund, they can always use, use help. But an IVF treatment is upwards of $30,000 and more. And in many dozen, the first IVF treatment doesn't work. You need a series of IVF treatments, $20,000, $30,000. The medicines alone for an IUI, for fertility treatments, and insurance doesn't cover it. I'll tell you a little rant for a moment. In this, in this wonderful country we live in, insurance will cover birth control. Because insurance will make sure that if you don't, we want to prevent you from having a child. Because for insurance companies, it's cheaper to pay for your birth control than your children's injuries and illnesses. So insurance will pay for birth control, but somebody who's got a physical uh, reason that they can't have children, that the insurance companies have determined having a child is elective. That's not a medical condition. So insurance companies don't have to pay for it. We need to lobby and change that because it's absolutely absurd. Birth control, insurance pays for. That's not elective. Abstinence isn't an option. Birth control, insurance pays for. But people struggling with infertility, that insurance doesn't pay for. It's absolutely backwards. It's absolutely backwards and it needs to change. So people going through these challenges are struggling emotionally, physically, financially. And we don't need to compound their pain by being insensitive, by saying and acting in insensitive ways. We did it for the first time this year. I'm very proud. Please God, we will every year. But before we had the chasen kol na'arim, before we had the kol na'arim aliyah in shul with our world record, Guinness world record talus, and hundreds and hundreds of children standing underneath it, you know, uh, we set a special mishaberach for all those trying to have children. And how did that come about? Because I've heard from women Simchas Torah morning is one of the hardest days of the year for them if you don't have children. Kol Na'aram, everyone's bringing their children and get candy and stand under the talus and wave the flag and dance in the circle. Wow, what an amazing day. But what about the person whose arms are empty, who doesn't push a stroller to shul? You know how painful that morning is for that person who doesn't even come to shul Simchas Torah morning because it's easier to stay at home than to see everybody else. So we said a special Mishaberach before, um, before Kol Na'aram. So we should all be much more sensitive and we should daven that all those struggling should amir tzashem bizocha to enjoy the birth of their, hev- of their healthy sons and daughters within the coming year. So, Mesa Anochi. Oh, how do we get on to this? So Rashi quotes Chazal. What is Rachel saying to Yaakov? I'm dead. My sister is popping out kids around me. Everybody's having children. And what am I here for? What's life all about? Am I in Mesa Anochi? If you don't give me a kid already, if we don't figure this out, I am dead. I feel like I'm dead right now. It hurts to be awake. It hurts to be alive. I feel like I'm dead because I ache. I ache to have children. I ache to nurse. I ache to change a diaper. I ache to, raise, I ache to, be, ache to be woken up in the, middle, in the middle of the night. You know, what, you know what it is when a person is struggling to have children hears someone else complain about how much they had to wake up and how tired they are and how miserable life is? We have, to be, we have to be much more careful. So the Rashi says, Mesa Anochi means 
that I'm dead already. But the um, the who said this? The Rashbam says the Rashbam Mesa Anochi Tamo Lamata Shu Poel Aval Mesa Alai Rachel Tamo Lamala Shu Lishaavar. The Rashbam says Mesa Anochi is the future. I will die. Whereas later we read Mesa Alai Rachel. Remember when Yaakov says I was on my way and my car broke. My car died on me. Would you believe it? Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel went up and died. She up and died on me. Can you believe it? So that Mesa. It's the same word Mesa. That means in the past. Whereas here the Mesa means in the, in the future. So Rachel turns to Yaakov and she says, there's a number of unusual things here. Rachel sees that she has not given birth to a child le to... Yeah, what do you mean? Who else is she giving birth to a child for? And what do you mean? The child's not for herself, it's for Yaakov? Why does it say le Yaakov? And then, Rachel's jealous. And she says to Yaakov, give me children. What do you mean, you give me children? Yaakov's in control? It's not that Yaakov wasn't being intimate with her, it was not resulting in conception. Let's read the whole story, then we'll come back. How does Yaakov react? I do not encourage trying this at home, men. How does Yaakov react? He loses his cool, loses his temper. temper. He says, What are you blaming me? What are you accusing me? What are you giving me ultimatums? You're going to die if I don't give you... What, am I God? Am I in control? Am I in charge? So what happens? She says, Oh, I see that Bila, my maid, is coming. You know what? Be intimate with her. And have a child and I will be built through her. I can adopt the child. The child will be mine through my maidservant, and even though I can't um, biologically parent a child, but surrogacy, not surrogacy in the sense of taking Rachel's eggs, but through Bila, I will have a child. And Yaakov, um, in fact, is intimate with her. And Bila gives birth to a son. God judged me and he's given me, he heard my voice, he gave me a son. Bila gave birth a second time. And this time Rachel says, sacred schemes have I maneuvered to be equal to my sister, and I've prevailed. So she called him Naphtali. So Leah sees that she'd stopped giving birth. Leah is no longer able to conceive. She takes Zilpah. She gets in on the action. She's not content with what she has. She says, I can't give birth. Okay, two could play at this game. You took Bila, Yaakov, take my, take my Zilpah. And Zilpah gives birth, Leah declares, good luck has come, and she calls his name, God. A second time, Leah says, And then we're interrupted now with the story of the Dudaim that we referenced, and then we pick up this section afterwards of 
Leah gets that extra night that Rachel traded for the Dudaim, and she conceives and has a fifth son. And Leah says, Wow! But to she wasn't expecting it. But Leah, a sixth one, and she says, uh, she names him Zvulun. And then she has a daughter named Dina. And then, Rachel. Now God remembers Rachel. He hears her. He opens her womb that had previously been closed. He allows her to conceive. She has a son. And she says, She says, God has taken away my disgrace. And therefore she calls his name Yosef. Yosef Hashem Li Ben Acher. God has gave, given me another, another son. So, there's a lot to talk about here. Let's see how far we can get. Let's go back to the very beginning. Rachel sees she had not given Yaakov a son, and she's jealous. And she's jealous. Is this jealousy good? Bad? Is jealousy ever good? No. Writes Rashi. Kina tovim amra. She is jealous of Leah's virtue, her piety, because she concludes to herself, why did Leah merit to have children easily and I'm struggling? It must be not random and not chance. It must be Leah is more virtuous. Leah has more masim tovim. And I'm jealous of Leah's character. I'm jealous of Leah's spiritual achievement. How did Rashi know that? He's quoting Bereshit's Rabbah. How did the Medrash know that? That this was a positive jealousy. So the Sif Seichacham says, Dim Lokein, also, Liknos, you're not allowed to have kinah otherwise. It's hard to believe that our great matriarch, Rachel, would be jealous. I want that car, I want that uh, job, I want that husband, I want that this. Stam jealous? Rachel would never be. So it must be when the Torah testifies that that Rachel was jealous of her sister. Excuse me, she was not jealous that her sister had children. What was she jealous of? The cause of her sister having children was her great merit and piety. We have a concept. The Gemara tells us, Kinesofim Tarbachachma. Jealousy among scholars increases wisdom. Competitiveness can be channeled in a healthy way. Envy and jealousy are no good. Why should you deserve what you have? I deserve it, not you. That is a categorically bad attribute. But if I look at what you have in the spiritual realm, and I say, I wish I dominated like that. I wish I knew so much Torah. I wish I was so um, drawn to do chesed. That is a healthy sense of envy or competitiveness because it causes us to be better. We have a lot of Torah sources that tell us that this notion that, kin- that jealousy is a bad attribute is true in the physical world is not true in the spiritual world. In fact, we have Makoros that teach us. Rav uh, Volbi says that the notion of um, who is a rich person, someone who is satisfied with what they have, that's true in the physical world. We should be happy with what we have. What we have is by definition what we need. And we, we're rich. A person is rich when they're satisfied with what they have. So should we say, I'm satisfied that I can barely read the Hebrew, that I never can't learn, that I don't ever do chesed. Ah, I'm sameach bechelko. I'm who I am. I'm nothing special. I have no great spiritual value. And I'm sameach bechelko. That's not richness, that's poverty. It says Ravobi, Ezu Asher sameach bechelko does not apply to ruchnius. 
In Ruchnius, you shouldn't be Samech Bechelko. When it comes to spirituality, you should be driven and ambitious and even feel a sense of competitiveness to want to achieve more and more. And that's what Rachel says here. Rachel is jealous of her sister, not jealous of the result that her sister has a child. What she's jealous of is the cause. Why does her sister have the child? She must be more worthy than I, and I will therefore make an effort to be equally worthy. Says the Orchayim, why does it say, Kilo Yaldali Yaakov? She sees that she has not given birth to Yaakov. It's unusual. Says the Orchayim Akadosh, Diktek Lomar Li Yaakov, Kihu Bachun Sheino Akar. Yaakov is tested. Often a couple of infertility problems. And sometimes the infertility challenge can get between them when they're not sure who's the cause of it. And they start to blame one another. They feel guilty that they're the cause of it. Who's the cause of this infertility? <laughs> Who is physically the cause? <laughs> Rachel. How do we know that? <laughs> it's pretty simple. Because Yaakov is able to father a child. So says the Yorachayim, Yaakov is bachon, he's tested. He is not the one who's infertile. So you can't pin it on Yaakov, it's on Rachel. And that's the Pshat. She sees that she hasn't given Yaakov a child. She knows that it's not Yaakov's fault. He's okay. That it's something, it's an issue in her. And that's why it's Le Yaakov, says the Orachayim. <clears throat> He continues, but we're going we're gonna to go on. So she says to Yaakov, Havali Banim. Look at Rashi. What was she saying when she tells him, No, give me children. What are you doing? You're so happy with your little child with Leah? What about me? I'm suffering. I'm alone. I'm alone. And you can't daven for me. Didn't your father daven for your mother? Yitzchak saw that Rivka was barren and he davens for her. Lenochach ishto. And says Rachel to Yaakov, didn't you learn anything from your father? He davened for your mother. Why aren't you davening for me? And if you don't mesa anochi, I will surely die. Why aren't you davening for me? So what does he answer? What? What does he answer? Yaakov gets angry. What, am I under God? Am I the one who's preventing you from having children? Is it me? I'm not the one. He loses his cool. Vayichar. Says the Sforno, When she said, Havali, give me, it, it set off a trigger in Yaakov because she was suggesting to him, the answer is in you. And you refuse to flip the switch. You're not doing whatever's necessary. The Says the Svarno, wow, I couldn't say this, but the Svarno says it. Says, Yaakov, at that moment, Yaakov was very offended, not for himself. Who is he offended for? Hashem. Yaakov turns to Rachel and he says, you're telling me I'm in control? Where's your Amuna? Where's your faith? God is in control of everything. How dare you? How dare you violate Amuna? Deviate from faith. Kfira. As if I can control. This is in God's hands. Is that a good reaction or a bad reaction? Says the Sforno, 
It's nice that Yaakov was in such a rush to defend God, but he stepped all over his wife in the process. He should have loved her. He should have understood what to say to her at that moment. What she needed to hear was not a Musa Shmuzan Amuna. What she needed to hear was not a drasha about Pitacham. That is not what she needed for her husband at that moment. And the Ramban is much stronger. But let's see Rashi first. Rashi says, Hatachas, ani. Am I in God's place? That I am holding you back? You're telling me, oh, you're throwing it at me, I should be more like my father. But I'm not like my father. My father had no children. He too was suffering alongside Rivka, my mother. But I have children. So, I'm not holding you back. Wow. Talk about insensitive. You said I should be more like my father and Davin? Well, my father was really davening for himself also. But I don't have to daven for myself, Rachel dear, because I have children. This is an issue in you. So if you understand that on the surface, it is very, very harsh. Very harsh. Very harsh. But maybe there's something more going on. So look at the Sifsei Chachamim, the commentary on Rashi. Os Nun. I don't understand. Why, how did Yaakov's answer answer the question? Rachel challenges him and says, Hey buddy, your father diving for your mother. Do you mind, would you open a Tehillim already? That's a joke. Tehillim hadn't been written yet. Would you, would you daven for me already? And what is Yaakov's answer? It's a problem in you, not me. I'm not like my father. Ask the sister Chachamim. You can't daven for somebody else? Why couldn't Yaakov open the Tehillim? Why couldn't he daven anyway? We don't find Elisha davening Elisha at Sarfis. Yaakov Yaakov should have davened anyway. Why did Yaakov lose his cool? How could Yaakov lose his cool? Anger is categorically bad. The Rambam in the it is Mishnah Torah, the Ramban, the Igaris Ramban, both right, that all qualities belong in our behavior cabinet to some measure, but anger never belongs. How could Yaakov get angry? Doesn't you know that people listen to us more when we speak gently and softly? So says the Sifsei Chachamim, what's really going on here? The Yaakov Amrla Shehispalal Aleha. He says, What do you think, Rachel? I love you more than anything. I've worked seven years for you. I'm in love with you. I davened from the bottom of my heart for you. But my tefillahs haven't been accepted. So she says to him, Well, if your tefillahs haven't been accepted, your father's were, he was a tzaddik. So if your tefillahs haven't been, you must be a... Russia. Russia. So now this got personal. Now she's saying, look, the physical problem is in me, but the spiritual unworthiness is in you. Because your father davened and he made it happen. Why can't you daven, give me a bracha, and make it happen? So he gets pretty insulted. 
You call them a Russia. You're nothing. You don't compare to your father. And that's what he was answering. He wasn't rubbing it in her face, the problems in you, not me. What he was saying is, my father's prayers were heard because they were even more genuine because they were about him. You can't compare a tefillah of an ani, a tefillah of a person who himself is lacking, cannot compare to the person who is davening for someone else. That's why the halach in Shulchan Aruch is, when we seek out a shliach tzibur for the Yom Noraim, one of the criteria, one of the qualifications we're looking for is, they should be an ani. We're looking for a person who's lacking in life. Because only a person who's lacking something, that individual is lacking, who humbly turns to Hashem with a sense of dependence, I need you, I beg you, please give me, that person is the most authentic, genuine, potent prayer. So Yaakov says to her, look, my father's prayer was effective, not because he was more righteous necessarily than I, but because it was on his own behalf. He davened for himself and my mother. But I have children. I'm only davening for you. So it's not a function of my righteousness. It's a function of the potential of my prayer and it can't possibly reach. This is the pshat. Sifseh Chachamim is quoting the Mahashal of what's really going on here in the conversation. You know, so from the surface it sounds like Yaakov is pretty insensitive to Rachel. But according to this pshat, Rachel threw in a few jabs at Yaakov too. You're a Russia. If you, you did David, I didn't know that. But if you did, then you must not be worthy because Rebbeinu Shalom answered your father and he's not answering and he's not answering you. Ramban quotes this Rashi and says the Ramban. Says the Ramban. Pasuk Aleph. Omru amefoshim shehispalal alai v'mayim meisa anochi davim from Meir surely die. Loshen Rashi shemishein lebanu choshev kemeis. We saw this Rashi. If you lack children, the person feels as if they have no continuity, as if they're dead. Says the Ramban, I am bewildered. Why would Yaakov lose his cool when his wife says, My dear husband, the beloved Rav Rosh Hashiva, Yaakov, that tzaddik, please, daven for me. Why would he lose his cool with that request? And why would he say, What am I, God? Says that this whole story makes no sense. That Rachel was asking Yaakov to daven on her behalf. Why would he get angry? And why would he say, well, it's a problem in you, not in me. Can he not daven for others? Says God says to Yaakov, you blew it. The Ramban quotes a medrash that sees that Yaakov did something wrong here. Yaakov acted with insensitivity. He should have rushed to Davin on her behalf. And he should have spoken with sensitivity, not rubbing it in her face, that she was the biological source of the problem. And because Yaakov was deficient in his sensitivity to his wife, because Yaakov spoke this way and failed to Davin, God says, if that's how you treat them, or tre- that's how you treat her, her son will rule over your sons. And in fact, Yosef is Yosef Atzadik with his dreams and the others bowing down and so on and so forth. That that's what comes true. Hashem says, that's the attitude you bring, 
then your sons will be uh, will defer to her son. So he says, Rachel is saying, I'm going to die from the pain and the anguish. She employed this threat. You know certain people say, I'm going to kill myself. If this doesn't happen, I'm going to kill myself. That's what the Ramban says she was saying. I'm going to kill myself. I don't know that she was threatening literal suicide. I'm going to wallow in my self-pity. I won't eat, I won't sleep, I'm going to die. I'm going to die of heartache. I'm going to kill myself. And she was saying that in order to invoke Yaakov's compassion so that he would put on sakva efer, he would put on sackcloth, and he would not stop davening until she got what she wants. But instead he loses his cool. The prayers of the righteous are not answered automatically. And he was angry at her for threatening suicide. He didn't like that. So he was, he was putting her down because he didn't like that she was um, threatening suicide as if her life had no value without a child. So that's what he said. The issue is in you, not in, not in me. Okay, and the Ramban goes on, but we're going to be out of time. So let's look at the Kliyakar. That's really what I want to see. Listen to this Kliyakar. It's unbelievable. Lefisharachal amra hayalach lespalachal alai. Rachel says, you should have done for me. Says Yaakov, what was Yaakov answering when he said, am I in control? Am I God? What he was answering was, even if I daven, I can't guarantee that my prayers will penetrate the heavens and be answered. When our prayers are heard, it's as if we're speaking to God directly. And when our prayers are prevented or rejected, there is a barrier. And says Yaakov, I can't guarantee that there won't be a barrier. So atachas elokim anochi, that's what the lashon of atachas elokim anochi. Am I directly under God with no barrier? Do I have direct access do I have the red hotline that I can call the Oval Office and tell God, order up one child for my beloved Rachel? I don't have the, the line. Can I guarantee that I have clearance and there's a direct connection between me and God? That is how the Kleyakar is explaining. But he goes on. Look how he goes on. Um Omar. Yaakov was not rubbing it in her face. I can father a child. I've proven it. It's your problem. You're the problem. Yaakov was not rubbing it in her face, says the Kliyakar. Yaakov was saying, look, one of us needs to do tshuva. Clearly we need to earn 
We need to have the merit to have this child. And we know it's not a deficiency in me. So my dear beloved life partner, for whom I've worked so hard, let's look into you a little bit. Is there something that you need to work on? Is there something that you need to repair? Maybe this is a message for us about you. And if you repair it, you'll be worthy. So Miyad, Nasna Rachel Eliba Lafashfish Bemaseha. So Rachel accepted that. She accepted the Musr. And she had said, Okay, he's right. It's a problem in me. Let me evaluate and analyze and see Aza Avan Garamla. Is there something in me? And when Rachel was honest with herself, she said, I do have something I need to work on. What is that I need to work on? Jealousy. Jealousy. Unlike Rashi, right? We said, Rashi's interpretation was it was a good jealousy. It was a spiritual jealousy. She wanted the merits of her sister. But here the Kliyakar is saying, it's a bad and negative jealousy. Rachel introspects, looks into herself and says, I'm jealous. She's so she thought to herself, maybe that's why the prayers of my husband aren't working. Because he could pray from morning till night. If I have something I need to repair in myself, his prayers are never going to help. So she thought to herself, I have to go to the opposite extreme. If my failure was jealousy, and that's what needs to be repaired in order to be worthy, I need to go to the opposite extreme. What's the opposite extreme of being jealous of Leah? <laughs> Says Rachel, if my deficiency is jealousy and that's what I need to work on in order to merit a child, I need to go to the opposite extreme. And what's more, what is more, what is more the opposite extreme than saying to her, Yaakov, you know what? Take my shifcha. Here she was jealous of Leah. The opposite of being jealous with Leah is to be generous and gracious and offer without jealousy Bilha. And that's why the, the Pasuk after this exchange, right? They go back and forth. Yaakov gets angry. And what's the next Pasuk? It's a beautiful Kliyakar. Yaakov gets angry and he says, Do I not have a barrier between me and God? Do I have a direct connection that whatever I tell him to do, he's going to do? I don't. I'm sorry. And besides, the Tikkun needs to be in you, not in me. And how does she react? What's the very next words? Here comes Bila, you take her. You're right. If I need to fix something and the problem in me is jealousy, you take Bila. Mekliyakar doesn't say this, but I think a continuation of his theme would be, that's why with the Dudaim, when Leah says, first you took my husband, now you want my Dudaim, Rachel's about to... And she stops herself. I got to work on my jealousy. I'm working on myself. So she says, you know what? Let her get away with her narrative. Let her get away with her revisionist history. Let her say whatever she wants to say because Rachel is going to work on her, on her midah. Okay, we'll stop here. So you see a fascinating conversation. You could read this as a criticism of Yaakov or the Kliyaka reads it not as a criticism of Yaakov, but Yaakov is trying to uplift his wife to help them as a couple improve so that she can merit to have a child. There was a beautiful insight of the Rav.
We don't have time. We'll save it for another time.